United States Institute of Peace, along with Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124, now present their weekly podcast. We are joined now by Dean Chang, who is a senior advisor to the China program at the U.S. Institute of Peace. He joins us now. Dean, welcome to the program. How are you? Excellent. Uh, for a Monday. Uh, thank yeah, you don't... for having me. I'm glad that you're here. And don't worry, I, I won't ask you to suddenly tell me your best time in the marathon. Mine is never. That's the... <laughs> That's the amount of time it takes me to run in a marathon. But I, you know, you joined USIP, which is the United States U.S. Institute of Peace, from the Heritage Foundation, where you spent over a decade as a senior research fellow on Chinese political and security affairs. I know you've written extensively on China's military doctrine, so I've got the right person today to talk about what's been going on. There's been a lot of talk about our relationship, as you know, and particularly as it relates to um, Taiwan. Tell me where do you, where are things now to bring us up to speed? So U.S.-China relations are probably at one of their lowest points, and China-Taiwan relations are probably at one of their lowest points, and that is related. China continues to send uh, combat aircraft across the midline of the Taiwan Straits uh, to keep the pressure on Taiwan uh, to try and get Taiwan to agree to reunify. Uh, they've also now uh, unprecedentedly uh, deployed an aircraft carrier east of Taiwan and then conducted air operations uh, from them to send the message to Taiwan, there's no place that's safe. Uh, we've generally come at you from the west, now we can also come at you from the east. And this basically plays to the larger issue that China now has the largest Navy in the world, outnumbering the US Navy. You know, thinking of the military power and the and the um, perceived might of it, I mean, it's not in a vacuum. I mean, the Russian President Vladimir Putin met with China's defense minister just yesterday, and it seems to underscore Biden. I mean, Beijing, excuse me, strengthening engagement with Moscow. Are there concerns about what this will mean for Ukraine, or is are they still having a? Um, I don't know if it's a feigned one or at least a vocal laissez-faire approach. Uh, so at this point, uh, certainly based on what we can see in the press, the Chinese haven't sold weapons directly to Russia. What they have done is uh, bought a lot of oil, bought a lot of grain. So they're providing Russia with money. Uh, the two countries have uh, moved towards a situation where they can resolve their trade balance without having to use dollars because the dollar uh, system can obviously be used to pressure both Beijing and Moscow. Uh, the fear is that as time goes on, particularly uh, since China has uh, not said that it won't sell weapons, that either they will help the Russians with munitions, rockets, artillery shells, etc., or eventually move to the point of selling uh, full-blown tanks and aircraft. And one thing the Chinese almost certainly would say at that point is, hey, you guys give the Ukrainians, you guys sell the Ukrainians tanks, artillery, etc., why can't we do that with the Russians? Yet China has refused to criticize Russia's military actions in Ukraine. They even they've blamed the United States and NATO for in part provoking Moscow. Is there any truth to that? Well, you know, if you take Moscow's position, their argument is NATO, uh, the West, etc., have never said that Ukraine, one, will not be allowed to join NATO, or two, that Ukraine should uh, reunify with Russia. And from the Chinese perspective, uh, there's a clear parallel with Taiwan. 
Um, the other aspect here is that um, Beijing sees Moscow as a key partner, not an ally, but a partner in basically facing down the West, which they do believe is in decline. When it when you look at the power dynamic, I mean, I some would say that it's a difficult diplomatic position for the United States to be in with China or, or to be as critical or to point out or to have much leverage given the financial leverage that China has over many countries. Is there a way to influence and persuade China given the power dynamic they hold? Well, certainly um, there are things that we can do. Um, for example, China is able to list its companies on the New York Stock Exchange. A uh, great way to raise money is you know, one of the most important stock exchanges in the world. And yet uh, Chinese companies don't have to be nearly as transparent, which is kind of ironic given that China's own economy isn't transparent, as American companies do because Chinese companies have not had to abide by Sarbanes-Oxley. So that would be one thing uh, we, the U.S. could certainly pressure. Um, the other aspect here is as we, um, you know, the president this uh, weekend said that, you know, China, I'm sorry, climate change is, is the most important existential threat to humanity and is pushing the U.S. towards a larger electric vehicle fleet. One of the things we need to keep in mind is who is going to make the batteries that go into all those electric cars? Mm. China has a dominant position in battery technology and battery raw materials. So we are signing up to be actually more influenced by China as time goes on. Which puts us in that very precarious position, as you mentioned, in the economy more broadly. In terms of the dollar, the power and strength of our, of our dollar going forward, I mean, obviously today you're going to have Speaker McCarthy in New York who is talking about the debt limit. You've had Senate Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen in the past and continues to sound the alarm on the prospects of default and what that would mean more broadly for the confidence in the U.S. dollar. And then you've got just the general economic concerns that we're facing here. And in a global world that we are in right now, how does that dollar fare? I mean, are all these going to be extraordinarily impactful in our ability to um, be as powerful as we'd like to be? Well, uh, first off, if the United States were to default on its T-bills and other treasury instruments, it would be the equivalent of a 12.50 point uh, Richter scale earthquake, which, by the way, I believe only goes up to nine. Um, I mean, that would so devastate the American economy, it would devastate global finance, uh, it would devastate the global economy. Fortunately, that's not the issue here. There are, you know, but um, what we are seeing is a number of countries who are looking at American politics, American policies, and starting to say, I'm not so sure America is dependable, uh, even without any threat of a default, etc. And so you've seen countries like Brazil and Malaysia start to say, maybe we want, like Russia, to move off of the dollar as how we resolve sales and transactions and do oil calculations, etc. Maybe we should start diversifying to the renminbi, the Chinese unit of currency, or maybe even become more tied directly to the renminbi. And that begins to weaken the American position as a global reserve currency. Talk to me about this upcoming trip or that Blinken is taking to Vietnam and Japan. What is the significance and the why? 
Well, I believe uh, the secretary is actually finished in Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, it was his first trip there. It was um, an effort to basically uh, extend a, a opening to a country that we generally see as being uh, fairly worried about, very worried about China and potentially fairly anti-China. The problem is, economically speaking, Vietnam, like the rest of Asia, is heavily tied to China. Uh, it didn't help that literally as he was on his way to Hanoi, uh, the State Department also issued a condemnation of Vietnam about its human rights record. Um, so Secretary Blinken, I think, had a lot of explaining to do as soon as he landed. He's now on his way to the G7 summit uh, in Tokyo, um, or G7 for foreign ministers, where he'll be meeting with key uh, uh, foreign affairs leaders from Japan, France, the UK, Germany, Italy, Um Canada. So these are these are the top major economies. The big issue he's going to face there, I suspect, uh, is the fact that the French president, Macron, in China basically said France and Europe should not be American vassals. France and Europe need to be strategically autonomous, by which he means separate from America, most importantly. And by the way, if China invades Taiwan, yeah, it would be bad, but is it really France's problem? And that has aroused a huge amount of controversy because this administration and obviously Secretary of State Blinken have really argued we and Europe uh, and Canada in a transatlantic relationship will confront China together. Do you think that in the long run um, that these conversations and these discussions are going to inure to the benefit of the United States and our economy and beyond? Well, if we can coordinate, if we can, in fact, get onto the same sheet of music, absolutely. Um, there are other transatlantic issues that we do need to resolve, not least of which is that apparently we've got some tariffs that are about to kick in, and the Europeans are very worried about that. Um, you know, what was it uh, Benjamin Franklin said? Uh, we uh, we must hang together or else we will surely hang separately. China loves to play bilateral games, bilateral issues, because 1.3 billion people in the second largest economy, individual economy, gives them a lot of, of power and influence. Uh, confronting a unified West, we're the ones who would have both the population and the economic strength. So important to hear your perspective. Thanks for joining the show today. I appreciate it, Dean Chang. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This podcast has been brought to you by the United States Institute of Peace and Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124.